How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, it's good to see you guys here on this holiday week. So glad that you have joined us for worship. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Lee. I'm one of the pastors for our network of churches, as well as the director of our ministers and training program. From time to time, I get to teach at all the different campuses, so I'm grateful to be here with you guys. And uh, as we celebrate this week of uh, the 4th of July, so grateful for that as well. This Yesterday morning, I, I did something I've only done a few times. I, I ran a 5K yesterday morning in Smithville, Tennessee, uh, the Fiddler 5K. That just It's fun to say that, the Fiddler 5K. And, and I did really pretty well. I finished third in my division. Yeah. If I was a 72-year-old woman, uh, so, uh, but I finished the race, so I, I, did, I did good, so that was fun. Yeah, and my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, her family lived there, so I got to see them hang out with them, so that was fun as well. So if you're first time to uh, the Experience Community Church, welcome. We are glad you guys are here. And what we do here at the Experience is we go through books of the Bible. We go line by line, chapter by chapter, and we just go until we finish, and then we start a new book. And we are currently in the Gospel of John. So we're in this week, uh, John 17. The Gospel of John is the fourth gospel. It's in the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last week, Pastor Corey took us through chapter 16. And what we have is chapters 14, 15, and 16. So chapter 13 of John is when Jesus is in the upper room, washes the disciples' feet, institutes communion. That happens in John chapter 13. And then 14, 15, and 16 are what is often referred to as the farewell discourse. It's Jesus giving kind of his final words before he's about to be arrested and crucified. So he's sharing those things. So we were looking at that. And in chapter 16, Corey spoke about the fact that we need clarity and courage. And on the clarity side, what he spoke about was the fact that when we know who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what he's accomplished for us, when we have confidence in his word, when we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us to live for Christ so that we can make a difference for him, that clarity then fuels our courage to be unashamed for Jesus, to be able to stand for him, to be able to declare him as the Lord and Savior of our lives. And so that's kind of what we looked at last week. If you weren't here for that, I would encourage you to make sure you go and look at it online. It was a really great lesson. But this week, we're going to be in chapter 17. And one of the cool things that we get is we kind of get to be on the sideline as we hear Jesus praying. So John 17 is a prayer of Jesus. Some people refer to it as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we're going to try to take away from it today is, are we answering the prayer of Jesus? So Jesus prays for some very specific things, and I want to kind of lead us into thinking, are we fulfilling, answering what Jesus prayed for? And just to go ahead and give you the preview, there are three things I think he prays for. One, that we will glorify him. Second, that we'll work for him. And then lastly, that we'll be satisfied in him. So those are kind of the three big anchor points of how I believe that the scripture teaches that we can answer the prayer of Jesus. So when you came in this morning, you should have received a notes handout. It'll have everything I'll say in it. If you have not done so, I would encourage you to download the Experience Community app. Then you can make sure you choose Murfreesboro as your campus and then click on feed and on feed, you'll see the sermon notes, click on it. It will not only have my notes, but it'll also have the scriptures printed out for you so you can read along with me. And then everything I'll say will be on the screens here at the front. 
I'm glad you guys are here. It'd be really, really lonely without you. So I, I am so glad that you guys have taken time out of this week to come and worship the Lord. So grateful for your presence here. Let's pray together and then let's jump in to see what it is that God wants us to hear this morning. And so Father, we are grateful for your goodness that you have given us a peace that has no end. We are grateful that we have this privilege to gather and to worship you today, to hear your word taught, to be able to enjoy fellowship with other believers. Thank you so much for that privilege. Lord, we do want to pray for all our campuses as they are gathering and worshiping this morning. We want to pray not only for our campuses, but every church in the counties where we have campuses. Father, here in Rutherford County, we want to pray for every church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would just continue to grow them and that they will have greater impact on reaching people who are far from you. We are grateful, Father, for the privilege we have to do cool things like buy uh, school supply stuff that can encourage families that might not have enough, that they'll know that they are heard, that they're seen, and that they're known, and that they have people who love them. Even when we don't know them, we want to come along beside them. So bless all our campuses as we do things that will bless families. I pray for this morning, Father, as we jump into your word, that your spirit would move among us. Lord, we are grateful that you've given us your word. Now, help us not to just hear it, but Father, I pray that we will apply it in such a way that we'll be doers of your word as well. So we give you praise for this morning, and we are grateful that we can do this in your powerful and wonderful name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're gonna begin in verse one of chapter 17. I'm gonna read the first five verses, and then we'll jump in and see what it is that God wants to say. So verse one. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So oftentimes we look at Matthew chapter six and in that chapter, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus prays a model prayer. He says, hey, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And oftentimes that's referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But really it's the Lord's model prayer. And in Matthew 6, what Jesus does is he gives us some categories by which our prayers can be made. So those are the broad categories. But in this, what John records is truly a prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. And it's often, again, referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. So it's not just him modeling prayer, it is him actually praying, and we get to kind of listen in on it. But again, it's just a reminder, Jesus modeled prayer. He prayed often. Mark 1, chapter 1 says that in the early morning, while it was still dark, he departed to a lonely place and was praying there, which is a reminder for us if God the Son, Jesus had to pray and prayed a lot. How much more do we need to be praying? If he was one with the Father and he's constant contact with him, how much more do we need to be doing the same? So when he prayed, he assumed that position that was pretty much a normal position for Jewish people to pray. He probably had his hands uplifted and the Bible says he looked up to heaven. 
But the Bible records a lot of different postures in prayer, doesn't it? There are people who pray on their knees. There are people who pray on their face. There are people who stand with their heads bowed. Others stand with their heads lifted up, with their hands up, their hands down, all kinds of different postures in which we pray. I mean, if you drive down I-24, you have a posture of prayer, don't you? So there's all kinds of postures we can pray. So the posture is not as important as who we are praying to. And we have to realize that we are praying and we are going to God. We are speaking to him. We are not just praying to the air. We're not just praying in our minds. We are addressing God, which again is important for us to realize because in this farewell discourse, Jesus has a couple of times said, when you pray in my name, I will answer. If you pray in my name, I will hear your prayer and I will answer your prayer. So when we pray to the Father, And we do it through the Son, who John 1 tells us is the Word of God, and we do it by the power of the Spirit. When we pray those kinds of God-saturated prayers, we can be sure that we will be heard and that we are praying in His name. So you need to make sure that you are in God's Word. Let it fuel your prayers so that when you address the Father, you'll be grateful you're doing it because of the Son, and you will have the Spirit who will help you as you pray. Those are the kinds of prayers that Jesus will answer. So he says something that he has not said yet in the gospel. He says, my hour has come. Up until this point, there's been times where he said, it's not yet my hour. It's not yet my hour, but now he says, my hour has come. And all of human history has been moving to this point in history. So from the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, from the moment he created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, from that time when they sinned against God and rebelled against him in Genesis chapter three, all of human history has been moving to this place in the time when Jesus would now be arrested falsely He would be falsely tried. He would be physically brutalized. He would be humiliated as he hung naked on a cross and he would die all for the glory of God and for our good. This is the center point of human history is what Jesus accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection. It's what we look to and it's what we celebrate, which is again amazing when you think about that Jesus died not because we loved him, He died when we were his enemies. He died when we were far from him. He died when we didn't even care about him. Yet he loved you so much that he was willing to give himself for you to the glory of God. And so you heard Kyle talk about God's glory. And when we think about glory, what does that even mean? And what does it mean to give God glory? Well, just a little simple definition for me that kind of helps me think about what it means when we say we want to give God glory God's glory is when his attributes and his character are on display, okay? So his attributes and his character are on display in such a way that he is seen as the only one who is worthy to be desired, worshiped, and obeyed. So when we display the glory of God in our lives, what we do is we make much of his character and of his attributes, his love, his patience, his strength, his power, his beauty, his patience. All of these things are on display in such a way that we desire God, we worship him, and we obey him. Now, his character and his attributes are always on display. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. 
In Romans 1, Paul says that all creation displays the power and the attributes of God. But when God's attributes and his character, when his glory is especially displayed, is when Jesus is dying on the cross and when he's rising from the dead. That is a beautiful, amazing picture of who God is and what he has come to do. But here's the amazing thing is that Jesus says, I am going to give glory to my father through my suffering, through suffering. And not only will he be glorified in his suffering, but he says, Father, the hour has come for me to suffer and you will be glorified as well. Well, how will that happen? How will Jesus' death glorify the Father? Well, we've already known this from John 3. John 3, 16, many of you know this verse. And notice what it says. God, God the Father loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son. The Father is worthy to be glorified because he held nothing back from us. He held his most precious son, he gave willingly for us that we might have eternal life. And when we say that phrase that he gave his one and only son, oftentimes we just briefly just go over that quickly, right? Oh, he gave his one and only son. But remember in those words, he gave his son, that word gave means he gave his son over to be beaten and mocked and scorned by humanity to be spit upon, to have a whip beaten against him, to be nailed to a wooden cross, displayed nude for everyone to laugh at and mock and scorn. This is what it means that he gave his son for us so that if we will believe in him, anyone, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God is glorified when we magnify his son as our savior. God the father receives glory through his son because of Jesus' death. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says this in verse four. Look at it again. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me. What was the work that was given to, the, uh, to Jesus to do from the Father? To die for our sins. So here's what we take from that. You see, the most loving thing that God has done is to be truthful to show us the way in which we can have eternal life. John 14, 6, Jesus says just a couple of chapters earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The way we receive eternal life is knowing the one true God through his Son. And notice what Jesus says, I have completed the work you have given me. That means this, that there is no other way by which people are saved other than through Jesus Christ. And his work was finished on his cross and through his resurrection. The work that he has done has been completed. And that means this, we can't add anything to the finished work of Jesus. There are so many of us who think, well, if I do enough good deeds for Jesus, then I will earn my salvation. But what Jesus said is, no, your salvation has already been purchased. It's not something to be earned. It's something to receive. And so instead of us thinking, hey, if I do enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds, then I will be acceptable to Jesus. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. You don't have to add anything to it. But we also have to be careful that we don't minimize the work of Jesus by saying something like this. Well, you know, there are multiple ways to get to God. You know, you can go the Hindu way or you can go the Buddhist way. Hey, there are some really good Muslims and they can get to heaven that way because all paths lead to God. That minimizes the exclusive 
truth that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Do not think you're being loving by telling people lies, by saying, oh yeah, you can go your path. Jesus came to show us the only way. His finished work is the only way we can come to faith in him. And again, some people think, well, isn't that being intolerant of other people? No, it's not being intolerant at all. It's being loving. If God made us play a guessing game of how to get to heaven, now that would be an evil God. Oh, you'll, you'll never find out until you die, and then maybe the way you went, maybe you'll get in. That would be awful. But Jesus lovingly has said, no, I'm the way. The question is not, is he the way? The question is, will we believe it? Will we humble ourselves and receive it? But he is glorified by what he has done for us. So God has glorified Jesus by giving him authority over everything, including salvation, how it is accomplished. But while he was on the earth, a lot of people had trouble with him because they said, how can you being a man forgive sins? How can you being a man heal people? How can you do that? Because on the earth, his glory as God was veiled in a certain way. Now we know in Luke that there was the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, you remember? And his glory was displayed. And you remember Peter, James, and John fell like dead men on the ground because it blew their minds to see the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day, friends, where you and I and every human being who has ever lived will see the undeniable glory of the Son of God. And we will see Jesus on full display as God the Son. If you want a glimpse of that, read Revelation. Read when John in chapter 1 sees Jesus. Read in chapters 4 and 5 when Jesus is in the throne room of God. Look at those and be marveling at this glory of Jesus. But here's the truth. On that day, there's many of us who will be so excited to see the glory of Christ but there's going to be many people who hate it. You see, one of the things that we have to remember is what C.S. Lewis said, that what hell really is is giving people, many people, what they desire because there's many people who live their lives saying, I want nothing to do with God. And there's coming a day when they will see his glory and still not want anything to do with it. We think that when they see God's glory, they're going to be going, oh, I made a mistake. No, what the Bible seems to teach is those people will still shake their fist at God and say, I want nothing to do with you. Which is why, again, the glory is his. It is not ours to touch. It's not ours to try to convince people. All we do is point people to Christ and let him do the work. Because if we start to take the glory for ourselves and don't recognize that we are just people who display his glory, then the power that God wants to do in us and through us to magnify his name and bring glory to his name will be minimized. If you begin to touch the glory, you'll lose the power of God working in you and through you. Because he said, I will not share my glory with anyone. That's why I chose the picture of a projector as kind of the background for this section. Have you ever thought about a projector? The only time you think about a projector is when it goes bad at the, at the film, right? When it breaks. But what does a projector do? And by the way, I know we're digital now, but I'm old, so work with me. <laughs> but when you think about the movies being shown through a projector, the projector did write the movie, didn't cast the movie, didn't act in the movie, didn't direct the movie, 
didn't do the props or the sets, didn't do the special effects. It didn't do any of the film developing. It didn't do the editing. It didn't put the score on it. It didn't do anything. All it does is it projects the movie so the movie can be glorified. That's what we are, friends. We are projectors of the glory of Christ. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about how good we project him. It's all about his glory being on display. We don't want to touch his glory because if we do, we'll lose his power. We want him to be displayed in everything that we do. Next part, it's a little bit longer. Verse six, I revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name so that uh, the name you have given me, excuse me, I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth." So the truth about God that we receive is revealed to us. In other words, what that means is that people don't find truth. Truth is given to them, and then it's up to them to either believe it or reject it. And so people, we as followers of Christ, have this great privilege of constantly telling others this good news of Jesus Christ. As we have received it, now we reveal it to others. And at the Experience Community Church, we do three things over and over and over again. And this is what God has called us to do. The work he's called us to do is found in the Great Commission. We're to go and make disciples, which means we teach the word so they can hear the word. We baptize them once they have believed the word. And then we continue to teach them to obey the word and to keep it. And that is all we do over and over and over again. We are a church of disciples who make disciples. So we teach the word or we make disciples, we baptize them and then we teach them. And that's what we do. This is what God has called us to do. And again, it is an amazing process for his glory. And it seems like it's really simple, doesn't it? Just, hey, teach the word so people can hear it so they can be made disciples as they are being baptized and then continue to teach them. But simple doesn't always mean easy. So the reason we do what we do is we have a conviction that God's word is true. His word is truth. And because we believe it, we share it with others. That's what fuels the work that we do. 
And the disciples received that revelation from Jesus and now has been given to us. And when they received the revelation, they believed that Jesus is indeed the son of God. But there were those who did not believe Jesus was who he said he is. And what did they do? It created conflict because the disciples were saying, Jesus is God. The other people were saying, no, he's not. And that created war, which meant that these disciples would now live out the rest of their lives in conflict. So yeah, simple message, but it's not easy. It's not easy at all to live it out. And so what did Jesus promise? He said, look, I am leaving you behind I am going to be with my father. So he's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again three days later. He's going to be with his disciples for 40 days. And he is going to ascend back to the father. But he says, look, I am leaving you behind, but not alone. I am sending you the comforter, God, the spirit who will indwell you and will help you face the backlash of what it means to live for me. You will have help in the midst of it. Which again reminds us this, that protection, when Jesus prays for protection, it doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean the absence of troubles. It doesn't mean the absence of hardships. But what it does mean is that in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the trials and the hardships, we will have peace and joy in that conflict. And you say, hey, how can I have peace and joy in the midst of hard times? Well, it comes from purpose, doesn't it? If I believe that there is a work that Jesus is doing in me through the hardships and through the trials, if I believe he's making me more like his son, then I can have hope that this trial, this hardship, this persecution does not have the final word Jesus does. And that can only come through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, look, I am going to model to you what it means to go through suffering, to go through trials on the cross as he's being betrayed, as he's being beaten, as he's being brutalized, as he dies. I'm going to model for you what it means to be faithful even unto death. So that's what Jesus did. He was faithful to his disciples. And he says, look, I am going to be faithful to love you so nothing will separate you from my love. I am going to protect you even though you may be in conflict. I will not leave you as orphans. And then he's going to preserve them so that they too can be faithful to the end. But he says in his prayer, I kept them all, Father, except for one, the son of destruction, who is Judas. Because what happened was, is Judas proved not to be faithful, but to be faithless, and that he didn't truly belong to Jesus. His faithlessness displayed his unbelief. And Judas is a warning for us, isn't it? Judas is a warning that proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee saving faith. Now, in the South, and it's becoming less so, but many of us grew up in a South where it was okay to be a cultural Christian, where as long as you showed up to church at least a couple of times a month, as long as you gave a little bit of money, as long as you bowed your head at the right time and sang the right hymns at the right time, and as long as you did those things, you were good. But what the Bible says is, look, there are going to be people on that last day, the day of judgment, who will stand before Jesus. This is in Matthew 7. And who will say, Jesus will say to them, depart from me. And why will he say that? Because they're going to go, hey, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? That's three pretty big demonstrations of power, isn't it? Prophesying, casting out demons, and pray, uh, uh, 
doing the miracles, those are amazing things. And yet Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And why? It's because these people are trusting in their resume and not in the Savior. They're saying, here's what I did for you, Jesus. They're not trusting in what Jesus did for them. And here's what Judas did. Judas wanted Jesus to be a Messiah that would be a a political leader who would come in and destroy the evil Romans and place uh, Israel back on the throne and put them in preeminence. And that was not at all what Jesus was going to be. And Judas hated that. And so he thought by forcing Jesus's hand through his arrest, that Jesus would then fight against that evil empire. But that's not at all what happened. And what we have to be careful is that we think, hey, just tipping my hat to God, that'll get me in. Jesus don't want just part of you. He wants all of you, friends. He wants everything in you. He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Question is, are we doing that? So Jesus says, as I have been sent by the Father, I'm now going to send the disciples out into a world so that they can proclaim the gospel. But he prays against satanic opposition and cultural conflict. Friends, you know this if you're living for Jesus. We are in conflict all the time. And those conflicts come in two primary ways, through satanic opposition and through cultural conflict. And what do we mean by this? The enemy does not want us to make disciples. The enemy does not want us telling people about Jesus. And so he is going to work against us in doing that. And then we live in a culture right now that wants nothing to do with the truths of Jesus Christ. Nothing at all to do with it. So when we say, here's the truth, they call us liars. They call us weird and odd and different. And they say that we are intolerant and they give us all kinds of names instead of willingly looking at their own hearts to see, are they telling the truth? They won't do that because they don't like being told the truth. Which means we've got to recognize that we need courage and strength for this battle. We need Jesus in our hearts. We need the word of God fueling our minds. We need brothers and sisters who are praying for us, who are coming beside us, who are loving us and helping us. We need this if we're going to stand against the lies of this culture. That's what we are sent into. So you got to be ready for battle. And so what did Jesus say? The way you're ready for battle is to be sanctified by the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So this sanctification means that they were not to be conformed to the world. Romans 12, 2 tells us that as well. Don't be conformed. That means don't be pressed into the mold of this culture, which means this, we are called to live in non-conformity with this culture. We will be strangers and foreigners in this culture. We will be different. And this non-conformity means we are being conformed to the image of Jesus and we are not being conformed to the image of the world. That is what sanctification means, to be made more like Jesus less like the culture. But the only way we can do that is if we have the Spirit and we have the Word. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, works in us in such a way that our minds are changed and that what we do is changed. Now, just because we're in this opposition with the world, it doesn't mean we hate people because they've been lied to. They have been blinded by the enemy 
And so we love people and we love them well. We don't separate from them. As you've heard Corey say often, we don't isolate from the world. We are insulated from the world. So we still have to go into the world and share this good news, but we are opposed to the lies of this culture that would say Jesus cannot be trusted. Jesus is not the only way to be saved. We are opposed to that kind of life. Last part. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you are. Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. So Jesus says that all authority has been given to him by the Father. So he is Lord over all things, including the future. And what does that mean? Well, Jesus knows how long it's gonna be until he returns. While he was on earth, he didn't, but now that he's back with the Father, he knows when he's coming again. And we already know that billions have been born since Jesus ascended back to his father. So we know that's already happened. And he knows that there will be billions that need to hear the gospel. And so we believe if we have been sent by him, that we have a story, we have news that's too good to keep to ourselves. See what I did there? Y'all were in worship, right? Okay. But here's the thing. The question is, are we joyfully sharing this good news? Some of us think it's hard to share the good news, you know? And the struggle I have with that, and even in my own life, is this. Yeah, the first part of the story is bad news. And what's the bad news? We have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin is death. That is bad news. But what's the good news? that Jesus took on flesh, that he lived a righteous life that you couldn't live. He died a substitutionary death that you deserve, taking the wrath of God and satisfying it fully in such a way that if you will turn from your sins and by faith trust in him, you too can be saved. Isn't that why many of you are here today is because you've experienced that good news? And yet why do we hold back when we need to be sharing that with other people. Well, part of it may be because of the way we live. Because it's not just the words we speak, it's the life that we live as well. If we really believe that Jesus changes lives, then it is impossible for followers of Jesus to be with him and not be changed by him. Again, we said just a minute ago, proximity with Jesus does not guarantee saving faith. But if you are with Jesus, you will be changed. In fact, it's interesting if you go to Acts chapter four when Peter and John are arrested for healing the guy that was lame. 
And the Sanhedrin, they are amazed at the stuff that's coming out of the mouths of Peter and John. And they looked at them and said, these guys are unlearned men. But what was it that set them apart? They knew that they had been with Jesus. Do people know that we have been with Jesus? And if we have been with Jesus, that means we are learning that he alone can satisfy us. And if we are satisfied in Jesus, that means everything about us changes, including our priorities. I mean, what is most important in your life today? And can I tell you the truth? For many of us, what's most important is achieving the American dream. In fact, that's what we teach our kids, isn't it? Listen, I want my kids to go to a good college so they can get a good job, so they can have a good retirement, and they can have children so that they can just keep repeating that process over and over and over again. And here's the sad fact. We want our kids to trust Jesus, but we only want them to have enough Jesus to be saved, not enough Jesus to be radical for him. We want enough Jesus that they'll go to heaven, but we don't want them to get so much Jesus that they go to Uganda or to El Salvador or that they leave a good paying job so that they can serve orphans in El Salvador. We don't want that kind of priority in their lives. Yeah, can you have Jesus and a good job? Can you have Jesus and a good 401k? Of course you can. But what is the priority of your life? If you are satisfied in him, your job and your bank account won't satisfy you. Only Jesus will. But when we've been with Jesus and we're satisfied in him, even our relationships change because no longer do I expect my spouse to make me feel good about myself. I feel good about myself because of who Jesus says I am. And then I can love my wife without her having to earn my love. It also means that sometimes in our families, we're going to have some conflict, not because we don't like our families. They won't like us if we keep convicting them about Jesus. And I'm not saying convicting them by bringing your, you know, King James Bible to Thanksgiving. That's not what I'm talking about. But listen, when your priority is Jesus Christ, he's going to ooze out of you. And you're not going to be obnoxious about it. It's just going to be that that's who you are. And people who don't love Jesus don't like that. We're supposed to go into the world, love the world, but the world won't love us because we convict them about who Jesus is. Our passions and our desires change. You now begin to care more about people being faithful in Christ and coming to faith in Christ than you care about sports, than you care about entertainment, than you care about pleasure. Now your priority is Jesus and him alone and making him known. And so if you want to be sent by the Lord so that you can give him glory, do his work, you've got to be satisfied in him in such a way that it spills out of you. And when people see the changes that God is making in you, you will be a testimony to people that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he will do. And part of this demonstration is what we even see here today. Because the kingdom of God, this church of God is now a multi-ethnic, a multinational community of believers who gather together and the thing that unifies us is Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed that my people would be one and being one in unity does not mean uniformity. We're not a bunch of stormtroopers standing, you know, in the, all the white outfit, right? And just looking exactly the same. I mean, look at this. 
We are people from every different socioeconomic background. We have different schools that we went to. We have different experiences in our life. We are different skin colors. We are different ethnicities. We are all unique individuals. And yet when we come together, there's one singular focus and it's on Jesus Christ. And when we gather together, people don't understand how this can happen. I mean, do you realize that even right now, some of you are Tennessee fans and you're sitting next to a Vanderbilt fan and you're worshiping the same Jesus? I know, cats and dogs living together, right? It's just not supposed to happen. But what makes the difference? Jesus does. And yeah, will we have some differences? Yes. And if you've ever been to a next class and you hear Pastor Corey talk about the important things in our church, one of the things you'll hear is him say, we major on majors and we minor on minors. What does that mean? It means we will disagree about the minors. You may be an old earth person. You may be sitting next to a young earth person. You may be a person that's a Calvinist or Arminianist. You may be next to a person who believes in eternal security and others believe you can lose it. Those are things that we will discuss, but we will not argue over it. Why? Because people need Jesus. They don't need theological training. And we will discuss, man, if you want to come and talk about that stuff, I'll talk to you about that. But we will not argue over it because we will be too busy taking the gospel out to the nations. What's the major? Jesus has come to save sinners. Are we telling that? Yeah, we're going to do theology. We're going to read the word of God. We're going to do that. But we will not disagree. Time is too short, friends, for us to be fighting over things that ultimately don't matter in the kingdom of God. Will we discuss? Yes. Will we war over it? No, because we are unified, not uniform, but unified in Jesus Christ and him alone. And because of that unity, because of that belief, we look and anticipate that one day we will stand around a throne and Jesus Christ will be sitting on his throne and we will worship him forever. But The question is, what makes heaven heaven? Because for some of us, the fact that there'll be no more death, no more cancer, no more heart disease, no more war, no more poverty, no more hunger, no more disease, no more famine, no more earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes, none of that stuff, that that will be gone. That is what will make heaven. But friends, that's utopia. That's not heaven. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus Christ. His glory on display, the fullness of God displayed in Jesus Christ. And so when we see heaven as focused on Jesus Christ, that begins to change our focus here on earth. Because every one of you is seeking peace. Every one of you, every human being that has ever lived is seeking something. Some of you are familiar with the famous quote from St. Augustine who said, we are restless, O God, until we find our rest in you. People are seeking after something. And Jesus is the treasure that they're seeking after. Jesus is the one that will love us in the way we think we want to be loved. Jesus is the one who will approve us in the way we think we want to be approved. Friends, I'm a recovering people pleaser. And I can promise you there is not enough approval that you can give me, my wife can give me, my kids can give me, my friends can give me that will ever satisfy my soul. I better find it in Jesus or I will always be disappointed. There is no pleasure out there that can satisfy this wandering heart. Only Jesus is the joy of my heart that can fully satisfy me.
Only Jesus can put us in a place where we are grateful for the gifts, but we worship the giver of the gift. There's too many of us who hold tightly to the things of this world and we hold loosely to Jesus. We need to change it. We need to hold tightly to Christ and let everything else go because if I have Jesus, I do have everything. And I have learned that he satisfies my soul. So the question is, is will you seek him? Again, there are some of you here today that you're searching and we're glad you're here. We are so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us and to be a part of this time. But what Jesus did is he gave the gospel to his disciples so that now through centuries, it's been passed down from one disciple to another and to another and to another. The truth has not changed. Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he would do. The question is not, is it the truth? The question is, will I submit to it? And for many of us, we don't need more convincing of the truth. We need to humble ourselves, turn from our sins, and place our faith in Jesus. Will you do that? And so how do we glorify Jesus? Well, first, are we praying to him? You say, well, how's prayer acknowledging his glory? Prayer to him means we recognize that we need him. He is not just an add-on to our lives. He is the center of our lives. He is the giver of everything we need. Do you humble yourself in prayer? That gives glory to the Father through Christ by the Spirit. Are we doing that? Are we allowing Jesus to change us daily? This walk with Jesus is not a Sunday to Sunday exercise. It is a daily experience of submitting to him. Listen, friends, we don't know what tomorrow holds and we can't change yesterday. So today is the day that we are to live for him. Today is the day we make much of him. And we can do that in everything we do, whether you go to the lake, whether you're watching a ball game, whether you're hanging out with friends, everything you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it to the glory of God. And that changes us each and every day. Again, Jesus said at the end of chapter 16, you're gonna have trouble in this world. What do sufferings and hardships do for you? Do they draw you closer to Christ or do they push you away from him? Do you feel like you've been sold a bill of goods if you go through trials and heartaches and suffering? Can I just let you in on a little secret? There, there's only three kinds of people in this sanctuary right now. There's really only three kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in the midst of trials and hardship. There are those who are coming out of trials and hardship. And there are those who are about to go into trials and hardship. Good news, right? But listen, if you've lived your life any time, you know that. You know that. But when I know that Jesus is the ultimate satisfier of my life, that I know that even in my trials and hardships, he can get the glory. It gives me purpose through the trial, through the hardship, because I know it's not for nothing. It's ultimately for his glory. And how about this? Do you ever shrink back from telling people that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Can I just confess to you something? First, 
Do y'all agree with me that in coffee shops, the tables are too close? Okay. But I've been in coffee shops talking to, to people. And we'll be talking about Jesus and celebrating him. And then, you know, some of those things, they're only like a foot away. And somebody will sit down next to me. You know what I've done to my shame? Lowered my voice. Because I'm afraid that they'll think I'm a Jesus freak. Or they'll be offended if they hear me talking about Jesus. Why would I shrink back from proclaiming the name that's above every name? Now, I'm not going to yell Jesus at them. They're just six inches away from me, okay? So I'm not going to yell at them, but why would I be ashamed of the one who saved me? The one who has given his life for me, the one that I will worship for eternity. Why would I shrink back from that privilege? We are displays of the glory of Christ as we speak for him, and as we live for him. How about this? How are you doing making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them? Isn't it cool here that if you have won someone to Christ, you get to baptize them? If you didn't know that, that's what we do here. If, if you've led someone to Christ and they want you to baptize them, you can baptize them. That is so cool because it reminds us that we are all involved in this incredible journey of preaching the gospel, of sharing the good news, teaching it, baptizing, and doing it over and over and over again. Are you doing that work? Are you making disciples? Are you seeing them be baptized? Are you helping them to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus? How about this? Part of the work we do for Jesus is sharing our story of how Jesus changed our lives. Friends, your lives are an amazing display of what Jesus has come to do. Now, here's the thing. I know some of you immediately are thinking, but Mike, I don't really have this major story. I wasn't saved out of drugs or alcohol or porn addiction. I, I wasn't a bad person. I was just a person who knew I needed a savior. Do you realize that there are a lot of people in Rutherford County who think they are good enough to get to heaven? Your story can even help those people who think they're good enough to get to heaven by you saying, you know, one day I was so prideful, I thought as long as I just came to church enough and did enough good things, I would go to heaven. And God convicted me in such a way that I realized I was denying Jesus. I turned from my sin and I trusted him. There are people who need to hear that story too. And yeah, we are a group of people that have amazing stories of God's deliverance out of all kinds of junk. But pride's a sin too. And people need to be delivered out of that. And so the work we do, are we counting the cost? It may cost us relationships. It may cost us friends. It may cost us our job. It could cost us someday our freedom. But the joy of following Jesus should always be greater than any of the opposition we face. And so... Are you loving Jesus in such a way that his love for you changes how you live for him? I am so satisfied in Jesus that I don't need anything from others. As long as I have Jesus, I have everything. And out of that, then I can love people properly, not making them earn my love or making them make me satisfied. Now I can live love freely and live freely with only Jesus. 
How satisfied are you in him? Because if we are focused on Jesus's goodness and beauty, what that will happen is that minors will fade, our differences will begin to fade away, and we will be unified in pursuing Christ. It's interesting that a lot of church wars happen over preferences. When the reality is, if we're focused on Jesus, preferences fade away. We used to sing a song years ago that would say this, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Be satisfied in him. Because if you're not, you're gonna probably find that your life is gonna be filled with some anxiety and you're gonna find that nothing makes you happy. You're gonna be discontent. And the reason you're discontent is because you're looking everywhere for something to satisfy that restlessness in your heart and the only one who can do that is Jesus. That's it. And here's the thing, friends. Jesus is not hiding. You can give your life to him today. You can surrender to him today. You can quit seeking all the crap of the world that continues to leave you hungry. And you can be satisfied in him today. Will you bow your heads with me? And so this morning, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, again, we are so grateful that you're here. And I told you there'd be a pastor here on the right and Pastor Savut is up here on my right, your left. If you're not a believer, but you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, come up and talk to Savut. He would love to talk with you. If there's a lot of questions, he'll set up a time for coffee or for a meeting afterwards. But don't leave here without asking your questions. We're not afraid of them. If you're here today and you know that there's some stuff in your life where you're not satisfied and you just need prayer, we have men and women on both sides of the stage. You can come to them and friends, I can promise you there's nothing you'll ask them to pray for that will shock them. They won't look down on you. They won't dismiss you. They will pray with you. And then finally, all around the room where you see a lamp on the table and on some of the poles where there's baskets, we have communion, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the cracker and the juice. And here's what I'd like for you to think about today as you eat and drink. And again, the ones who can do that are believers who are living in repentance. But here's what I want you to think about. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. I am the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. When you eat that piece of cracker, when you drink that juice, will you thank him that he's the only one that can satisfy you? And will you once again recommit to seek after him with all your heart and ask him to satisfy your soul? Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the truth of it. We are grateful that we can glorify you, that we can work for you, that we can be satisfied in everything you've done for us. 
And so as we close this service, Father, would you move among us for your glory? We ask in your powerful and wonderful name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You can serve yourselves.